Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll look at our passage together. Father, thank you for your word to us tonight. It is good. We're thankful for the word we heard from Boston, from Encounter Church. Just a few short months, God, they have everything that we have prayed for and been asking for over the last couple, couple months. And, and God, what a blessing it is. And we do not want to hesitate. We do not want to, even for a moment, uh, continue to, to go forward without praising your name. Um, God, we give you all the glory for it. And we truly believe, just as you said in your word, that if we ask, we shall receive. If we seek, we shall find. And so, God, we, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for Christ Jesus, our Lord, who makes all of those promises true. And so tonight, as we gather and we consider what you have done in that situation with Encounter Church, if we consider what you've done in each and every one of our lives, we recognize that all praise uh, goes to the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we give him all the honor and glory. And as we look to your word tonight, we ask that you would help us grow Help us become better believers, better followers of you. Help us to see ourselves as more dependent upon you in all things. For it's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We left off last week with a uh, passage that demonstrated the um, dysfunction of the family, right? So we have gone through and we've gotten to this point. We've had Abraham and the promises to Abraham. We've had those promises passed down to Isaac and demonstrated in him. We've had Isaac and kind of seen his journey there a little bit in chapter uh, 26. And then last week we saw how that family, how God's promises were given to him, but that family still operated in so much dysfunction because Isaac and Rebekah had two children, Jacob and Esau. Both of them, are, they were twins. Esau being the older, Jacob being the younger. But in God's promises, in God's position and sovereignty over it all, Jacob was the one that would inherit the promises. And so instead of recognizing God, how would bring that about, Jacob took matters into his own hands. He deceived his brother. His brother wasn't easily deceived, but his brother had displayed, Esau had displayed the fact that he cared nothing for the promises of God. He was willing to give them up for a bowl of beans. And so he was fine with that. His instant gratification took over. And so we saw how Esau gave up the promises. But when it came time to get the blessing, Jacob deceived his father because his father was looking to deceive him and his mother. And Esau was looking to deceive them both. All of them were looking to deceive. And Jacob just came out as the top deceiver. And that's exactly what we see in that passage. Nobody is kind of let off here. They were all trying to get their way and use deception. And we see again how the main character in Scripture is God himself. And these other characters are demonstrating that God's promises will come true even in spite of our own sinfulness. And our own sinfulness is going to always lead, going to always lead to consequences that are harmful and, and hurtful to us in our life. So when you take off into sin, it's going to lead to great consequences. And that's exactly what we get to. One of the ways we saw it is that Esau uh, jumped out ahead of his parents and got some wives, and I say wives, multiple, and he chose them from the Canaanite women. This is what God had told them not to do, and he did. He chose them from the Canaanite women. And so where we leave off in chapter 27, after all of that, you have Jacob and Rebekah, his mother, 
You have um, them deceiving Isaac and Esau. You having Jacob getting the blessing from Isaac. Isaac recognizing that that's the way it's supposed to be. Esau getting mad. He cried and got upset. But at the same time, we talked about what was true repentance and what was counterfeit repentance. And we talked about Esau's displays counterfeit repentance because it's about him and what he didn't get. And at the end of the day, it didn't change because in chapter in chapter 27, verse 41, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which the father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, I feel like I've done that before for my own brother, but it was a long time ago. You know, you find comfort in the fact I'm going to, you know, at some point I'm going to get my revenge in this. But in this sense, Esau is displaying that he's not truly repentant or sorry for what happens. He's just upset that he didn't get the blessing that should have been his, which would have resulted in the wealth and riches of his father. And so he wants to kill Jacob. Rebecca hears this. She tells him Esau's going to make himself feel good by planning to kill you. Therefore, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you, of both of you, in one day? And what we recognize here is this sin and deception has now caused this family to split into pieces. Isaac had been blessed, but here he is on his deathbed, dying and can't see, a pitiful sight. Esau is angry. Everything he wanted had been taken from him, all because his, his wealth and riches are gone, and he tried to deceive, and he got out deceived. Jacob deceived, but him and his mom, he was a mama's boy, y'all know that. They loved each other, but now they're going to be separated because their family has now been torn to pieces and Jacob's having to flee and leave. Not only that, he's headed off to Laban and he's going to Laban and we already met Laban. And Laban's one that likes gold and silver and things that are shiny, right? So we'll find out what happens to him, but he's headed off and he's going to be separated from his mom. The consequences, the ramifications of sin are real here. And, 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 and if we recognize this, then just a simple application, we should recognize in our own life that we don't ever get away with sin, right? We don't ever just simply get away with it. When we commit sin, it affects not only our lives, but all of those around us. We should never act like sin is just simply isolated to my own actions or even my own thoughts, that the consequences of sin are real. And even for believers, Christians who are trusting in Jesus, when they go into sin and don't trust in the promises, while they may be forgiven in the end by Christ, only by showing repentance, true repentance, the consequences are still remaining. They're still there. And so you don't get away from it. God's way is always the best way. And the nature of sin is that we think we're smarter than God. We think we know better than him. We think we're wiser than what he has planned for us. So we commit sin thinking we're smarter and better than God himself. And what we should always remember is God's way is the best way. Even when it's hard. Even when it's difficult. Even when you've got to trust him for things that don't seem like they could possibly happen. God's way is still best. 
And so here you see the consequences of sin as this family is ripped apart, even though the promises continue. And that's what we will look to here in chapter 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him. Isaac has come to grips with the fact that Jacob is the one that the promises will continue through. Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Go back up to chapter uh, 27, verse 46. I forgot to give you that last little section. Rebecca said to Isaac, well, Isaac and Rebecca, they don't seemingly have the best relationship. You know what I'm saying? One likes Esau, one likes Jacob, one's trying to deceive, the other one's listening on the keyhole, putting, the, putting the, 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 the cup up to the wall, trying to hear what's happening. They're trying to get at each other. I mean, none of y'all act this way with your husbands and wives. I know it. Y'all know what I'm saying? We're all better than this. But they don't seem to have the best. But something's going to bring them together, and that's some aggravating daughters-in-law, right? And so here, that's what happens. Rebecca said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of these Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of these Hittite women like these, one of these women of the land, what good will my life be? She's sitting there saying, I can't take it anymore. So part of sending him away, Jacob away, was the same reason why Abraham and Sarah sent Isaac away, if you remember a few chapters back. They sent Isaac back to the homeland so that he wouldn't marry the Canaanites and intermarry there, that he would go back to his family and marry from within. And so that's exactly what Isaac is saying. Just as Abraham sent Isaac back, now Isaac is sending Jacob. You got to go to Laban. And when you go to Laban, you need to recognize you're fleeing because your brother wants to kill you. Yeah, that's one thing. But you need to find your wife from there. You need to find your wife, not amongst these godless Hittites who are aggravating, but among those who are faithful in your family. You need to find your wife from there. So, arise and go to Pada Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you. Uh, Isaac is going to pronounce a blessing here upon Jacob. God Almighty bless you. Make you fruitful and multiply you. We've seen that before in the text, the promises of creation or the, the ma mandate of creation. You may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Here Isaac blesses Jacob with the promises that God has given Abraham and passed on to him. He's now passing on to his son. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. And he went to Pada Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel Aramean, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Just I mentioned that he's going to Laban, setting the stage because the stage has been set a little bit. If you go back to chapter 24, whenever Isaac went back and he found Rebekah, uh, remember on chapter 24, verse 29, Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. We're introduced to him there. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring, and as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah's sister, the ring and the bracelets were gifts from Isaac, and as soon as he saw how rich this was, he's like, thus this man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring, and he said, come on in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I prepared the house and place for the camels. In other words, he saw how rich that Isaac was, he's like, yeah, I got a spot for you. Come on in. And Laban begins to demonstrate his own character, which is going to be played out in chapter 29 whenever Jacob begins to work for him and he deceives the great deceiver. It's a good family, I'm telling y'all. 
So he goes to Laban. And as he takes off to Laban, he's going there. Now Esau, Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Potamaram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Well, Esau's already got two. Esau maybe thinks he's got some hope here with his dad. Let me see if I can do this. Esau decides he's going to take a third wife. Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and gone to Potam Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to who? Ishmael. This joker just keeps missing it. And took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Neboath. And so here, Esau is trying to please his father, but again, he misses the whole point of it. Who is the, what, what is it that becomes most precious? What's most precious and should be most precious to Esau are the promises of God. He already traded them for a bowl of beans, remember? He'd already passed on them for quickness. He'd already done that. But now he's thinking, I'm going to go choose a wife. And instead of choosing one from a family like uh, of Laban and his mother, he goes to Ishmael, who's clearly not part of the promises of God. Esau, again, misses the whole point of this and shows that he has no desire for the promises. All this little passage is doing is testifying to the rightness of the fact that the promises are passed from Jacob, not to Esau, right? just continues to demonstrate that one understands, even though they may go about it the wrong way in deception, one sees it, the other one, one cherishes the promises, even if that's only it for now, and even if it's for selfish reasons, one cherishes the promises, the other one does not have any desire for the promises, promises of God. So here, Ishmael has now uh, Esau in his family. Moves on here. They'll come back to Esau later. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Ultimately here, we recognize already Jacob is the one that's coming of the promises. They're being passed to him. And we see a connection here. God had appeared to Abraham. We, we may think that God just appears to everybody in Scripture, but it's actually fairly rare. And here God had appeared to Abraham. He had appeared to Isaac. And now he's appearing to Jacob. God has a relationship with them. He's appearing to them. And he's going to appear to them to justify the promises are going on and continuing. He's going to give the promises. So in other words, the promises aren't just passed on from Abraham telling Isaac about it. And they're not just passed on from Isaac telling Jacob about it. They may know it that way, but the promises are going to be verified through God himself telling them. God himself is going to verify these promises for them. God himself is going to say, I'm going to do this. And now God has this way of identifying himself that we'll see all throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament that he is the God of Abraham, 
the Lord God of Abraham, the father and the God of Isaac. In other words, I'm the one who took care of him and Abraham prospered. Why? Because I watched over him and Isaac prospered. Why? Because I watched over him. I'm the one who gave the promises to Abraham. I'm the one who gave them to Isaac. I'm the one who continues them now to you, to you. So God demonstrates his own faithfulness by saying, now we're going to the third generation. And he doesn't even bring up the fact that y'all all been dumb and acted stupid, right? But I'm continuing the promises. And he says, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. He's reiterating the promise of the land that was given to Abraham. It's your, I'm giving this to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. He's reiterating the promise to Abraham again that it will be the sands of the seashore and the stars in the sky. That's your people, right? He's reiterating the same promise. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, if you remember... I said in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, there's three promises that are given to Abraham. And those three promises serve as what I call maybe an outline of the Old Testament, right? Of here's how God is answering these promises. And what were those three promises? I will make you a great nation, sands of the sea and stars in the sky. That will be your people, right? I will give you a land. I'll give you a land that will be yours and your offsprings. And I will bless you and bless those who bless you through the nations, to the ends of the earth. And so, again, he's reiterating a couple things. One, I'm the one who gave the promises to Abraham. They continue with you, Jacob. They're continuing on with you. And not only that, it's not just you that will be blessed through these promises. It's the nations. Remember, the nations, and this is just a simple side note. Sometimes we lose idea of this in the Old Testament. The nations were in God's plan from the beginning. It was not a, it was not a per parenthetical little note in the history of Scripture. The nations going to the Gentiles was in the plan from the beginning, in other words. And so here it's even in these promises. And he has given these promises to Jacob just as he gave to Abraham, just as he gave to Isaac. Behold, I'm with you. Verse 15, sweet words. I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, this promise has got to be sweet at this point to Jacob. He just deceived his dad, got a rough relationship there, surely. His brother wants to kill him and his only friend, because he's a, what, mama's boy, right? Is his mother... And now he's bereft of her. She's gone. He's taken off in every indication that he's sent off by himself. And he's in the middle of the desert. He's got a stone for a pillow. And he is no longer has all the riches and wealth of Isaac and his father around him. He is taking off in the middle of nowhere with nothing left and a stone for a pillow in the middle of the night just trying to get some sleep going to his uncle's house hoping that something's going to work out. That doesn't sound like he's in a good spot, does it? Hey, he may have had the blessing. He may have received the blessing. He may have got the birthright, but it doesn't seem to be working out for him at this point, does it? Yet in the middle of that, the promise of God comes to him. And again, 
the grace of God and the sweetness, and I use that word on purpose, the sweetness of God's promises always seem to speak to us at the very moment life is so bitter, right? The very moment it gets so tough, God does not leave us without a promise. He doesn't leave us in the midst of it. It's still there. Here's Jacob having lost everything he had and sleeping on a pillow for a night all by himself. And God comes to him. And he says, all the promises are true. And they're coming to you. And then he makes this other little sweet little note here in verse 15. And each element of this promise for Jacob is important. He promises him his presence. He promises him not only his presence, I will be with you. I will be with you and I will keep you. He's promising his continued presence. Although he's alone sleeping on a pillow, God says, I'm not leaving you and I'm not going to forsake you there. I'm not leaving you there and I'm not going to forsake you. His presence is being offered here to Jacob in the midst of even his losing it all. God says, I am with you. And we need to understand Whenever God redeems us, he doesn't, he doesn't redeem us and set us loose. He saves us to do what? He saves us to be with us. It's an incredible part of redemption that we don't need to forget. God desires to be with his people. That's what happens in Exodus. I will be your God. You will be my people. He doesn't just pull them out of slavery, slavery and the bondage of Egypt. He pulls them out to live and dwell with them, which is why the tabernacle's there. It's why all those rules. It's why Leviticus exists. How can a holy God dwell with an unholy people? Here's how it has to happen. But Leviticus exists. All that stuff y'all got bogged down in. Somebody told me the other day, y'all already stopped reading your Bible reading plan because Leviticus. All of that stuff all of that stuff in Leviticus exists because God is committed. He's committed himself to not only redeem his people, but to be with his people. To be with his people. Not leave them, not forsake them, but to be with them. And here's the requirement for you. And what Leviticus teaches us, if I can just take this side note, what Leviticus teaches us is in and of ourselves, we can never meet that requirement, right? I could never do enough for God to be with me forever. But God's going to do something through his son. I'm, that's, I'm stepping past my text here, but y'all hold on. God's going to do something through his son. So when you read Leviticus, when you read all those rules, what you should say at the end of the passage, I might not understand it all, but thank God for Jesus Christ who has done this for me, who has accomplished all of this. Because God doesn't just save us and leaves us. He saves us to be with us. That's what heaven is all about. He wants to be with his people. And here we see just a glimpse of this promise for Jacob. Even though he had done this dastardly deed of deceiving his family, and now he's reaping the, benefit, the benefits or consequences of it, whichever way you want to look at it. Now, now God comes to him in the midst of him sleeping on a stone for a pillow in the middle of nowhere saying, I will be with you and I will continue to be with you until Everything I promised is accomplished. We have, by the way, today, we have that same promise. Y'all know that, right? God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And not only that, God has written the promises of his, uh, uh, we may say, you know what? I wish I had the promises of God. He'd come to me in a dream. That'd be cool. You know what I'm saying? You've got something, as Jesus says, if you're a child of God, you've got something far greater than a dream with a ladder and a vision. You've got the Holy Spirit dwelling within your heart and his promises have been written there. So you never have to question them. You just have to simply look at what God has said. And so here he comes to Jacob and he says, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to leave you. Then he tells him, 
He reiterates the promises of the land. You are sleeping on a stone with the, with the hedges as your bed and the stars as your canopy. You got here in the middle of nowhere. All of this is yours. All of this is yours. So you may be concerned, but everything you see here, all of this land is yours. I'm keeping my promise. You may think you have nothing now. All of this is yours and your offspring. He reiterates that. He's not poor. He's wealthy in the Lord. And then finally, ultimately, he reiterates the future blessing of it all. He says, I will not leave you until I've done everything that I've promised you. He's already told him all the families will be blessed from you. He promises those future blessings that will be with him. All of his offspring, all of the families will be blessed. These promises of God come to Jacob at just the right time. God comes to him. And even though he had been, as I said, derelict in his duties as a son and as a brother, God still has grace and mercy for him. And he appears to him in that grace and mercy. Then Jacob awoke. This Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. Jacob comes up and we begin to see something that's happening. And in some ways we begin to see a change in Jacob. And really over these next few chapters, you go from that Jacob who was a deceiver to Jacob who's going to be named Israel, right? You see a journey in faith in Jacob's life is what you're seeing. So you're seeing someone who's a deceiver who was ready to get these blessings for himself. And God's now working on him in such a way that at the end, like this dream, I'm going to go ahead and, I'm go ahead and, and, and let y'all in on a couple chapters from now. You know what I'm saying? Because we won't be here for a while. Y'all will forget. But this dream came to him. There's going to be another dream. And look at what Jacob says in this dream. Jacob says, how awesome is this place? None is, uh, there is none. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. He names the place Bethel, the house of God. He says, this is it. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, set it up for a pillar, poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, means house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. In other words, he didn't change the name of the whole thing. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now Jacob comes up and he says, this is great. He's even says he's afraid God has come to him. So that, that idea of fear is some sense of reverence and awe. God has appeared to him. And yet Jacob responds here to this vow. And it, it, it's the beginning. It's, it's Jacob, you're starting to see a change in Jacob. At the same time, when you read this vow, it's kind of inadequate, isn't it? I mean, you think of you kind of, I'm kind of taken back. For a couple reasons. There's a couple shortcomings in this vow. First of all, the focus is on Jacob and not the Lord. If God will do this for me, if he'll give me bread, if he'll give me stuff like this, if he'll do it, then I'll be fine. And while we see Jacob's already, this is the house of God. He sets a stone up, pours the oil on it. He's trying to give, give credit to God. Even in his vow, we see a little something going, I don't know if that's right, Jacob. And Jacob says, because the reason it's all about him. If the Lord will give me this, if he'll take care of me with eating and what I wear, if he'll do all this stuff, then, then the Lord shall be my God. In some ways, he's 
implying some sort of doubt in the promises of God. Let me see if he's really going to do this. Let me see if he's really going to do, do this or, or come about with these promises or keep them. And in other ways, we see how he has done this and we've talked about this before. He's trying in some way to bargain with God. He's wanting God to, okay, uh, let's see how it works, God. Let's bargain together. You take care of me this way, then I'll give you this. And what's funny is the other shortcoming here at the end is this offering that he offers. God, if you give me everything I need, I'll give 10% back to you. And it says even a full tenth. Y'all see? He's not even going to give like 9.9%. .9%, you know what I'm saying? I'll give you a full tenth back, Lord. Even in all of this, you see, Jacob, there's some issues here. He's still concerned about himself. He still thinks he's got a bargain with God. He's still trying to work a deal just like he did before with Esau and with his mom and, and, and Isaac. He's still doing that. And while we see him start to turn toward an understanding that the Lord is in charge and his promises are good, we still see him not quite understanding. That's why this is an interesting passage because we're going to see this growth in grace because it starts here for Jacob. He sees the first vision and this is what he comes up with. If you'll do this, this, and this, then I'll do that, Lord. Thank you. I'll give you a 10 back. I want you to understand the nonsense. By the way, the, the, the tithe had not been established uh, at this point in Scripture. Um, you saw before with Melchizedek where Abraham gave a tenth, so that was established as a pattern um, and, and not necessarily prescriptive but descriptive of what Abraham did. Maybe that's where Jacob got it from, having heard about those stories because that's what they did. They sat around at night and tell those stories because they didn't watch TV. And so that's probably what may have come from it. That may be what Ab uh, Jacob may be thinking that he's, being, he's doing right. But do you see the nonsense of looking at God saying, if you'll give me everything, I'll just give you back 10%. And surely that's what we say. Surely that's where we start. But the idea should be different. All of the blessings Abraham realized at the end of his life. Isaac got it even though he had to get it by doing something stupid. As he trembled trying to pass the birthright to Esau and he had did it to Jacob through deceit. Everything belongs to God. Every piece of his life belongs to him. Every blessing that comes to him. Every dime that comes into his pocket. Every bit of that comes to, from the Lord. As Paul will say later, what do I have that has not been given to me? So the idea and concept that we can, we'll just give you back this little bit of everything you got me is really nonsense, right? The Lord has blessed us. All of it belongs to him. And surely we give back. We give back through tithes and offerings, surely. But we must work with a mentality in our life that everything we have is God's. And how I'm going to use it and steward it is for his glory. Every piece of it. Not just our money. But here's something that gets even deeper for us. Not just our money, but also our time. And I know I know as one who is a master, I have a master's degree at wasting time. We must recognize that even every breath we have is a gift from God. And we steward it in a way that brings him glory. Jacob hadn't gotten there yet. He will, because in the next dream Jacob gets, what's going to happen? Y'all remember? A wrestling match is going to break out. 
And what is Jacob going to realize? At this point, Jacob's like, hey, you give me this, I'll give you back 10%. The next time, Jacob's going to grab hold of God himself and say, I'm not letting go of you because I'm absolutely dependent on you. And you'll see the process of his growth from here to there through these passages. See that process. Jacob says, I'll give you a full tenth. Now, I want to go back a few minutes here to think about this dream for a second. Because this is not the only place that this dream will be mentioned. In fact, it'll be referenced in the New Testament. So if you turn with me, if you turn with me to the book of John chapter 1. The book of John, Jesus is calling there in chapter 1. You've got the prologue, beautifully written, incredible. John the Baptist's testimony where he calls him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he goes right after that. Uh, the next day, it says in verse 35, John's standing with his disciples and Jesus starts calling his disciples. So you get Simon, Cephas, which is called Peter. And then you get... Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him in whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Just understand the magnificence of that statement. We have found him whom Moses wrote about. Remember, Jesus is going to say this in John chapter 5. That's why I tell y'all that Moses wrote the, new uh, the, the first five books, right? Don't listen to any so-called scholar that will try to argue with you that somebody else wrote this thing. Because if that's true, then Jesus didn't know what he's talking about and nobody else did in the New Testament either, right? I'm going to stick with Jesus. I'm just going to let y'all know that. And so here, we found him and it's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So it's like we found this random guy and he's the son of God. We heard John testify to it and Nathaniel's hearing this going, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I wouldn't have picked Nazareth, right? I mean, we know that's, that's like if I was, if we were close to my hometown, I'd pick out some town close to it and pick on it like Gaston or something like that. But I'm not going to do that. I'm, and I won't pick on any town up here because y'all may be from there. <laughs> but can anything good come out of Nazareth. Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, demonstrating his authority, demonstrating his position as the son of God. Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus just simply responds by saying, I saw you where you were sitting. I know what you were doing, testifying that he has some instance, even though he knew, Nathanael knew he hadn't been there. He saw him. And so he believes now and he says, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, 
you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here in John chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus is referencing back to Genesis chapter 28. He's talking to Nathanael. And Nathanael believes simply because Jesus said he saw him under the fig tree. And Jesus says, you're going to see much more incredible things than that. You're going to see the angels descending up and down from heaven on the Son of Man. Jesus is making reference directly to Jacob's dream in Genesis chapter 28 to teach us something. And this teaching for us, this reference that comes, reminds us that the promises of God that, that, that Jacob saw of Heaven opened up and heaven and earth being in contact with each other through this ladder. The promises of God are solidified and sured in Jesus Christ. They're in him. Jesus said, you believe me simply because I said you were under a tree? You're going to see way more than that. In fact, you're going to see angels descending and ascending on who? Not on a ladder, but on who? The Son of Man. Jesus is testifying to the fact that he is the latter himself. He is the one that's going to connect heaven and earth. He is the one that's going to bring the blessings down and the, take, take his people up. He is the one that's bringing all of these two together. He's bridging the gap of them all. Jesus is saying, that's me. And when Nathaniel speaks of Jesus, Nathaniel says, surely you're the son of God, the king, right? Surely you're the son of God. You're the king. He has these terms that contend toward a, a militaristic understanding. And when Jesus responds, he says, yes, you're going to see greater things than these because the angels are going to send and descend on the son of man. Jesus doesn't use the son of God reference. He uses the son of man reference. The son of man reference comes from the book of Daniel chapter 7. Whenever Daniel is sitting there and he sees a vision of the throne room and the ancient of days is on the throne and here comes the son of man ascending up to heaven and the ancient of days crowns him as a king who will be a king forever and ever and his government shall know no end. So Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself was the son of man in scripture. I'm the one that Daniel saw. I'm the one that will receive the crown. But that son of man will receive the crown by going to war in such a way as this world has never known. He's going to go and he's going to conquer sin itself. He's going to receive the crown because of what he's conquered. And Jesus says, because of what I will do for you as the son of man. Y'all remember Mark chapter 10 verse 45. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Because of what Jesus will do as the son of man, the heavens will open up and all the blessings of God will come down and go up. All of this will come together because of what Christ will do. He will bridge the gap between these two worlds. It's what he has done. It's what he has offered. And Jesus said, if you can believe that I saw you under a fig tree, how much more so are you going to see? Because you're going to see me suffer and die and be raised again. And you're going to see me ascend to heaven. And the Holy Spirit's going to come to you. And you're going to receive the same promises Jacob did, all because of what I am going to do. Jesus is this ladder, he says, that brings the blessings of God to us. He's the one who brings the promises. God is not distant. Heaven and earth are connected. And the blessings of heaven come to us on the merit of Jesus Christ himself. And here, remember where Jacob sees the ladder. It's on a, a, a stone, a rock there that Jacob's going to take and he's going to bless. And what is he going to call it? Bethel, the house of God. And so in this sense then, where we meet 
God, where we worship together. As I've said countless times to you, we do not meet God in a specific place. We don't have to find that rock that that ladder was on. We don't have to go to Israel and find that place exactly to find God and meet him and know his promises. We meet God not in a place geographically. We meet God in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And we worship him there. God's house has come to us and dwells within us because Emmanuel has come to us and dwells within us. And so Jesus is the new Bethel where heaven and earth meet. God and humanity, the new place of worship is found in Christ Jesus himself. It's found in him. We don't go anywhere else. We don't need anywhere else. That's why I can be by my bed and cry out to God and he hears me. That's why I don't need some holy places other religions have to count on or, or trust in. We don't need that. We call out anywhere we are because Jesus is there. He's closer than our very fingertips to us. We worship him wherever he is. And he's with us. John tells us, just to be clear, that Jesus is greater than Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus says. John tells us even that Jesus was greater than, than Jacob himself, to put it in this context. If you, if you look at John chapter 4, verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Jacob only provided the water that can satisfy you for a moment and you need it again. What I provide for you is eternal life. That's the water I give you. Jesus is greater than Jacob. Jesus is greater than Abraham. Jesus is greater than Moses himself because Moses looked at his day and rejoiced and wrote of it. And it even says that in John chapter 1 when it tells us in verse in verse uh, 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, speaking of Jesus, he has made him known. Not Moses through the law, not Jacob through his word and his testimony, not Abraham and those promises made to him. It's Jesus that has made God known to us. So when we look back at these passages, we're reminded that we're looking for the one who is greater than Abraham. We're looking for the one who is greater than Jacob. We're looking for the one who is greater than Moses himself. Jesus is that one. And when Jesus speaks, when he talks to Nathaniel, he says, if you believe simply because I saw you under a tree, how much more are you going to see? And we who are alive even now, you know, we are saved by the same way Jacob will be saved. Did y'all know that? Jacob was saved because in the end and finally he believed and trusted in the promises of God. And we who are children of God this morning and this evening, whatever time it is, it's fine. It's morning somewhere. We believe and we are saved because we believe and trust in the promises of God. And the promises that have been kept for us. And we on this side is why Jesus would say, hey, the least in the kingdom are greater than even those who came before. Because now we know those promises are not found in just simply land and just simply blessing and just simply multitude of people. It's not found in camels. It's not found in horses. It's not found in any of that. That stuff's far too small. Our promises are found in the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ, where they are yes and amen. 
A lot of people speak about this great problem we have as Christians of dealing with the obnoxious nature of the gospel, right? And part of that obnoxious part of it is we tell people that you can't save yourself. We tell them that you're, you're a sinner and, and there's nothing really good about you. Sin has affected every single part of you. That doesn't go over well in most places, right? But you can have life. But what we also have to stick by is that there's no other option. You see, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ is not just preached in John 3.16. And it's not just preached in a couple passages in the New Testament. The exclusivity of Jesus Christ is preached even here in Genesis 28. There's no other way. He's the one who has bridged the gap from heaven to earth. He's the one that the promises depend on. He's the one that has brought them down and will take his people back up. It's Jesus who commands all the angels of heaven. It's Jesus who's in charge of these things. It's Jesus who has brought salvation, heaven down to earth. And we can't find it anywhere else. We can look all we want to. We can try to, to, to make some plan or come up with some action or create some God in our mind that fits our, sac our, our own sin and our own desires. We can do all that if we want to, but those are just paper Jesuses. They're not real. It's only this true one that brings salvation in life. And so our role and job as believers is not just to trust in him and him alone to be dependent upon him, but it's also to point others to him and be unashamed of that because there is no other salvation. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, as Peter says. It's only Christ. But yet, all of the promises of God are found in him. Once you find him, you do not have to look any further. You found it all. I was reading today a quote, and I'll end with this, from Charles Spurgeon. As Jacob is sitting out in the woods with a stone as his pillow, he says, how precious it must be have seemed as it came to Jacob in that den of a place where he lay with the hedges for his curtains, the heavens for his canopy, the earth for his bed, stones for his pillow, and God for his companion. I am with thee. Tomorrow when thou shalt open thine eyes, thou wilt look back to the west and say, I have left my father's house and my mother, Rebekah, behind me. And the tears will be in thy eyes. And thou will look to the east and say, I'm going to the house of my mother's kindred, and I know them not, save that I have heard concerning Uncle Laban that he is hard and grasping, and I know not how he will receive me. But it is not that a precious it, it is not, is it not that a precious thing to start upon a journey with, I am with thee. I the ever blessed. Thou, thy mother is not with thee, I am with thee, the Lord says. Spurgeon applies this word to anyone who might be setting out on a journey. Is any young friend here who is leaving home? Are any of you going far for the first time and do feel sad? Are you about to immigrate to a distant country and does your heart feel heavy? Do not, do not go at all till you can get a hold of this. I am with thee, says the Lord. If thy spirit go not with me, carry me not up here. Wait till he gives the answer. My spirit shall go with thee and I will give thee rest. Well, I would encourage you is this not just about going on a long journey. It's about getting up every day, right? And if I'm going to get up, Lord, you've got to get me up. 
You've got to go with me because we are utterly and completely dependent on him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and its truth contained. And thank you for your Savior, Jesus Christ. May we all find our solace, our comfort, our peace in him and his promises. For it's in his name we pray even now. Amen. Thank you all so much. We'll see you all Sunday.